Welcome to Brave Dynamics. This is your host, Jeremy Ao. Leadership is harder than it looks. As a proven founder and Harvard MBA, I interview courageous entrepreneurs, executives, and investors every week. I also share my frontline experiences, coaching insights, and own professional development journey. If you're stepping up as a new leader, founding a startup, or venturing into the great unknown, this is the podcast for you. Hey, Shriyad, good to see you again. Great to see you, Jeremy. Well, such is life. We were just hanging out a few weeks ago, and now here we are. Yeah, happy to be on. It's an honor. <laughs> Thank you. It's an honor to hear from you. So I always love our chats, and I'm so excited to share some color of our chats with the world, especially about your professional journey. So uh, for those who don't know you yet about why you're cool and hip and awesome, how would you share your personal journey? Oh my gosh. I don't know if they're going to conclude that I'm hip or cool. Yeah, I guess if we sort of start from college, I had the opportunity to go to Stanford for undergrad. And in many ways, I think that was a, a dream come true. My parents, Asian parents, they really wanted me to go to Harvard. And so I early decisioned Stanford to hopefully not have to do that. Uh, I was like, I grew up in a tribal country. I like being warm. Boston winters just didn't sound like a great time. It seems like a pretty trivial way to make a choice. But went to Stanford undergrad. And I think when you grow up in Singapore, you think that because you're fluent in English, going to school in the U.S. will be really easy. You watched American TV, you listen to American music, and then you show up on campus and you're like, oh, wow, these people are like super different. So I feel like college was like the first year was just like acclimating and figuring out what was going on and kind of being blown away by the quality, the ambition of the people, but also being like, I don't know anything that they're talking about. Like, I don't watch Seinfeld. I don't watch The Simpsons or South Park or any of these things. Like, what? Probably just tells you how old I am. So, majored in econ and a little bit unusually, I suppose, biomechanical engineering. If I had been smart, I should have majored in computer science, probably. But I really loved building things. And I had always played sports all through my life. And so, I really loved the idea of learning how to build things that could help people, whether it was like new knees, new ankles, you know, pieces of body that I would probably need or want when I get older and retire from all my physical activities. But fate has a lot of like funny twists and turns to it. I wound up actually doing an internship in college for JP Morgan in the investment bank. And I didn't really know what an investment bank was. I had a friend who had interned for Credit Suisse the year before and he'd said, hey, I think you would like this. And I was like, what is it? He's like, he's like, it'll be good for you. He's like, and it's only for 10 weeks. So you can do anything for 10 weeks. And I was like, well, I guess that's true. And so I read up a bunch of books and it seemed like you had to learn how to like DCF things and do math or whatever. And I was like, okay, I think I can do these things. So I go to the interview and um, they didn't want to do any of these things that I had practiced for. And now like, 20 years later, you kind of know, right? You've been that person who's had to interview like tons of kids and you had to read hundreds of resumes. So he didn't actually want to ask me any questions about like whatever fake preparation I'd done. He was just like, oh, so you play rugby. And I was like, oh yeah, I play rugby. And he's like, oh, I played soccer in college. And I'm like, okay, cool. So we literally just spent the whole time talking about sports. Then the interview ends and I said, actually, you know what? my team bus is going to pick me up from outside this JP Morgan office in San Francisco and we're going to go play match. 
And then he's like, oh, so amazing. There's like more reminiscing about like trips and things like that. And then I get on the bus and all my teammates are like, so did you get the job? And I was like, I don't know. I'm so confused. Like we didn't even ask me anything that I had prepared for. We just talked about rugby the whole time. And so I wound up getting the job. My friend was right. I really enjoyed 10 weeks there. It was the summer of 03. So we were kind of in the run-up to the first boom and crash. And it was sort of very intoxicating to be, you know, 21 and working on transactions at companies that you had you know, heard of, had used their products. You know, it could be eBay, it could be Cisco, all of these things. And so I wound up going back there full time uh, after I graduated. And so I spent two years in the investment bank covering tech and healthcare out of San Francisco. And because it was the boom, you know, I did 19 transactions in two years. Uh, I don't remember all that much about the two years. I drank a lot of Diet Coke and coffee and I didn't sleep very much. But I think what I learned was a lot about how businesses get financed because I worked on IPOs, follow-ons, converts, high yield, investment grade. And then I also learned that I didn't want to be an investment banker. And I just caught up actually with my old boss from that period. He's now a vice chairman at JP Morgan. He's a longtime guy. And when I told him I was leaving, he said, you don't want to grow up to be like me? And I said, no. I mean, I've seen how you live your life. You know, you're on a plane 15 days a month. He had a sort of a six or seven year old daughter at that point. He had a stay at home wife. And I said, I don't know what's going to be my future, but I'm pretty sure it's not a stay at home wife. And so I don't think this is going to be particularly sustainable. JP Morgan San Francisco is a little interesting because it's actually built from the old Hambricht and Quist teams, which if you remember the first tech boom, they were part of the four horsemen of those boutique investment banks that took a lot of the startups public. And so the practice on the West Coast is actually much more growth company focused rather than on the East Coast, they covered a lot more like the IBMs of the world. And I think what I found was like, oh, I really like that part of it. I don't need to go sell another revolver or credit facility. That's actually not that interesting. Like I'm much more interested in smaller companies. And so I wound up working for a late stage venture fund called Institutional Venture Partners. And they are like old school, founded in 1978. Reed Dennis, the founder, is one of the like original like grand old men of Silicon Valley and uh, Sand Hill Road and got to work on deals like Twitter and Zynga and then all these enterprise software companies that you've probably never heard of. And so that I thought was a fantastic education uh, because basically you evaluate thousands of deals a year, but you end up making maybe like six to 10 investments a year. So it's a very uh, thorough process to kind of whittle that down. And then after a couple of years there, I wound up going to business school. I think for women, business school is like a like an insurance policy, I suppose, in a way, a place to mark your career, like in case you ever do take time out or you'd work for smaller companies that people hadn't heard of. And also I realized that I actually had no real, I guess, formal business training. I'd learned a lot from the financing side, but you know, I hadn't really actually thought about businesses all that much. I didn't really know anything about marketing or sales or like all these functions, right? I knew a lot about like financial statements. And so I go to business school and I think this is also like a great reminder of how narrow my view was. And I just remember very clearly the practice case. So HBS 
is, is a case method. So every case has this like expository essay about like the founder and the problems they were considering in their head and blah, blah, blah. And then at the end, there's always financial statements. So the practice case was about an ice cream distributor business. So I flipped to the back and I look at the financial statements and I was like, 2% net margin. I mean, like, why do these people even get up in the morning? What kind of business is this? And I had just been so brainwashed by software businesses that it was actually really hard for me to think about non-software businesses. And so I thought business school was a great widening of my field of view. And I think both in terms of types of businesses in the world and also types of people, right? I think you met people from all over the world who you never would have met or hung out with in any sort of more standard professional capacity, right? So people who had served in the military, people who worked in, you know, more traditional industries, kind of you name it, someone had done it. There was a girl in my section. I mean, it was kind of intense. She, I think she was Polish. She trained to be a professional musician. She came from a family of professional musicians. And then she decided she was bored. She became a professional competitive ballroom dancer and then consultant. People just like super crazy bundles of skills and experiences that showed up. And so I thought that was just fascinating. Of course, you know, you go for the network and whatnot. I guess the fun fact about business school is uh, I wound up living off campus and my apartment wound up being super startup-y and entrepreneurial. So the first year, one of my roommates was Cat Lake, the founder of Stitch Fix. And the second year, one of my roommates was Justin McLeod, the founder of Hinge. So any of you who are using Hinge, it started in our living room in uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts. And so that's like kind of funny to think about. And for Stitch Fix too, it's crazy to kind of think about where they started and the sizes, how those businesses have grown. And then I thought I was going to try to come back to Singapore after business school. This was 2011. There wasn't as much venture capital then. And I figured it'd be pretty hard to try to get a venture capital job. And so in a very strange series of events, I wound up getting a hedge fund job because I thought, oh, there'd be way more finance jobs in Singapore. And I wound up working for a hedge fund in Connecticut called Bridgewater. It's one of the world's largest hedge funds. The founder, CEO, Ray Dalio, is pretty well known for his writing. So first, I think many asset managers read Bridgewater's uh, daily notes. And then uh, subsequently, Ray has written a lot as well about his management philosophy the principles. So if you want to talk about that, we can get a beer and talk about the principles. I was there for a year. I was on the investment team. I worked on FX trade strategy. I think what I learned was I didn't like public markets all that much. I didn't like living in Connecticut. And I really just wanted to be back with smaller companies closer to the action, things that felt more tangible to me. And so we were living in New York at the time my now wife was working at a startup. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to find a startup job in New York. And so I started like networking, doing some small consulting projects for people, trying to find teams or businesses that I liked to work with. And I was really struggling. I did a bunch of projects and I was like, "Ah, I don't really care about fashion. I don't really care about jewelry. I don't really care about advertising technology, which was a lot of what was in New York at the time. And I wound up chatting, getting drinks with an old friend. 
and he had been in New York ever since college. And so I said, hey, you've been here for a while. He was working on his own startup. Can you tell me what are some interesting startups in New York that you recommend that I go reach out to? And he said, oh, I don't really pay attention to anybody else's company. Like, I'm too busy working on my own business. He's like, you should come work with me. And I was like, what do you do again? Because, you know, we were like social friends, basically. And he said, well, let me show you. And so this was Tim of NerdWallet, which at that point was him and Jake, the co-founder, and a couple people they'd hired off of Craigslist. And they had just made the decision that they were going to try to really build and scale it. They'd kind of been running it, just like the two of them for a while. And so I'm like, okay, well, like, tell me more. I was like, that's interesting. Show me the books, right? Like, show me what you guys have been doing. And I don't really know how to explain it, but as he was talking and like, walking me through the business and explaining how it worked. I just had this feeling. I was like, there's something there. I don't really know what it is, but it's like, there's something there, there. And I said, okay, well, theoretically, suppose I did come work with you. Like, what would I do? And Tim says, what do you want to do? There's so many things to do. And me, you know, being the idiot MBA, I was like, would you let me be a product manager? That's like the pinnacle, right? Like, and he's like, you want to manage engineers? And I was like, yeah, can I do that? And he said, sure. He's like, whatever. You know, he's like, so much to do, like, whatever you want. And so I was like, okay, make me an offer. So he makes me an offer. I called Catherine. I was like, hey, I just got this offer to be a product manager at my friend's company. Small detail, they're in San Francisco because he just moved the business to California. I said, but I can commute because Catherine's like, we just got here. We just moved to New York like a year ago. Like, I like it here. Like, I'm not moving. And so I take this job. And it's, it's very funny because I always get calls or questions from fresh grads or MBA grads. They're like, how do you make the decision to join an early stage startup? What's in your like framework and what metrics? You know? And I was like, look, <laughs> it was pretty basic. The way I thought about it was like, I think this is like a big market. I think Tim is a high integrity person. And I believe like the thesis because there's some sort of early signs, but it's like super early, right? I'm going to give it a year. And if it works, hey, I'm a genius. If it doesn't work, I'll get another job. It's fine. But if it doesn't work, it won't be because someone screwed me or there wasn't a market, right? It'll have not worked because like we didn't do a good job. We didn't execute properly, which is a bet I'm willing to take, right? I'm betting on myself essentially and this 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 team. And so, yeah, we started. So the first year I was at NerdWallet, it was 2012. I spent commuting back and forth between San Francisco and New York. So I do three weeks on, three weeks off. And so in San Francisco, I slept on people's couches for the whole year. So I slept on every single of the management team's couches. So as we grew the team, I slept over at everyone's house. And then I also had like a home couch with some business school friends, which actually included Russ Heddleston, who's the founder of Doxen, that just got bought by Dropbox. So I think I paid them $400 a month to have the right to sleep on their couch. And I would buy booze periodically for their fridge. And I thought this was a real steal because if you can imagine, you know, like a one bedroom in San Francisco at the time was like, I don't know, $2,800. And we were already paying rent in New York, right? So I wasn't going to be paying rent in two expensive cities on a startup salary. So I did this for like a whole year. And then... The f- that that spring, my mom flies in for the engagement party, which is in Sonoma at Catherine's aunt's house. She lands at SFO and she's like, where's your apartment? And I was like, oh, I don't have an apartment. She's like, what do you mean you don't have an apartment? I was like, well, we have an apartment in New York, but I don't have an apartment here. She's like, what are you like talking about? I was like, oh, I just sleep on people's couches. And she's like, this is unacceptable. And so 
the whole time we're driving to Sonoma, she's like on the phone with like realtors setting up viewings. So Saturday's engagement party. Sunday, we like drive around the city and look at apartments. Sunday night, she's at the lounge at SFO flying out and she's like calling me. She's like, did you sign a lease yet? Did you sign a lease yet? Did you sign a lease yet? So I signed a lease and then we moved full time to San Francisco. I was at NerdWallet 2012 through 2018. It was six years. We bootstrapped that business the first three years I was there. We didn't raise money externally until 2015. IVP, my old fund, led the round. It was a $69 million Series A. So it was a pretty big Series A. But at that point, we were probably doing about 50 million revenue run rate. I don't even know what that would be in today's market. <laughs> I shudder to think about that. And Tim kept his promises. In the early days, I managed engineers in Russia, Pakistan, Vietnam, Brooklyn. Um, so the first few years, uh, we ran outsource teams because as a bootstrap business, we couldn't really afford Bay Area engineers. And then after we raised, we really pushed hard to bring engineering in-house. I and mean, so I ran a couple of product teams. And then my last couple of years there, I ran business operations and corporate development. We acquired a couple of businesses, integrated those. So I think as most in startup life know, you do whatever you need to do at the time that you need to do it. And so I make the joke that I have done, I think, almost every job at the business. We've hired a lot of people. So when I left, I think NerdWell, it was 400 people. I think I knew the first 300 employees all by name. Then I had maternity leave. And so then there was a four-month period where people arrived and I had never met them. And so then when I came back from maternity leave, there was a big catch-up to try to like learn all these new names. But yeah, it was like an incredible, like crazy ride. Business continues to do well. It's growing. It's profitable. They've done another couple acquisitions this year. And so it's really cool to see that and to remember where we started. And I think what's even cooler is to see all the people we hired as fresh grads who've grown up in the business and who've left either to start their own companies or to take really good jobs at other neat businesses. Yeah. And then I decided, we decided we're going to move back to Singapore in 2018 and I had to figure out what to do. And I think the choices were start a company, join a company, start a fund, join a fund. And I spent a few months traveling in the region, meeting with entrepreneurs and VCs. And I think where I landed on it was I felt like I was at a point in my life that I wanted to found something. If I was going to work my ass off, I kind of wanted to work my ass off with a little bit more control. And then, you know, this opportunity with Hustle Fund came along. So my partners, Eric and Elizabeth, are actually old friends from college. Elizabeth and I actually have known each other since we were five. So we, we have long history together. We've all tried to hire each other. So I tried to hire Eric at NerdWallet. I tried to buy Elizabeth's company at NerdWallet. Elizabeth tried to hire me, the startup before. You know, so it's kind of like a, we've always tried to do stuff. And then this is kind of our chance to all work together. And so I feel like with Hustle Fun, I kind of get really the best of things. I, I get to start something. Emerging management funds are just like startups. You are constantly raising money <laughs> and constantly figuring things out. And I get to hopefully give back to a nascent ecosystem and, you know, share some experiences and kind of build, you know, hopefully build an institution that endures, right? Not just uh, one or two funds, but I think, like, if you really think about the great funds of Silicon Valley, they're institutions. They survive generational transition. And I think that's something we aspire to. <laughs> well, that was fun. 
I got so much to unpack here. So, so many questions I want to ask, right? Well, for those who don't know, but well, there was a couple of things that jumped out, right? Obviously, you mentioned a whole bunch of names like Hinge, Stitfish, Fix, Nerd Wallet, Bridgewater, which are, if you're in the States and you're in the know, you're like, whoa, these are high signal, great companies. And if you're in Southeast Asia, you're like, what is Hinge? <laughs> you know, what is Stitch Fix? <laughs> I mean, it is a big deal. And you're like, yeah, Stitch Fix went public. Actually, I know a lot of couples who met on Hinge. So I think I was at a bar in New York. There were three friends who brought their plus ones. And I was like, oh, how did you meet your plus one? And they were all like, oh, I met them on Hinge. And I was like, whoa, I got to, <laughs> what is Hinge doing that clearly Tinder and everything's not? I think the second thing that obviously jumped out to me was that you talk about your career journey in terms of often very much like learning what you like and learning what you don't like, right? So you join a company, you're like, oh, I don't like FX or I don't like this or I like this kind of company. So is that how you think about life? Like learning what you, when you think about taking a job, like learning what you like versus learning what you don't like? When I take a job, I think about optimizing for learning. So I think about what I want to learn. So I would think like in my first job, and I tell this to fresh grads, you don't really know how to be at a job. So your first job should be a place that maximizes teaching you like A, just how to be a professional, and then B, hopefully exposing you to a really wide range of things. And so I thought things like you know traditional paths, whether it's investment banking or consulting, they have that feature where you can see lots of stuff. And then you're like, oh, wait, do I like this or do I not like this? Which do I prefer to the other? What am I good at? Because I think, I don't know, I'm sure kids today are much more sophisticated than we were back then. But I felt like when I graduated college, I knew that I was like good at school. And that's not actually the same as being good at life or good at work. And so I think at least in your first role, finding an opportunity to be exposed to A, what does like high quality professional work look like? And then B, either different functions or different industries is super useful. And then I think early on in your career, you're often primed to optimize for optionality where you're like, I could do anything. But at some point, you only get compounding returns when you focus on something. And so then you have to think about, okay, well, how do I pick that something? And you can only get a better decision when you have more data. And the only way to get data is to do more stuff. <laughs> so yeah, I think I, I kind of think about it that way, right? Which is like my early jobs were very intense, but I got to do more stuff in a smaller period of time, which then meant you could actually think about, really reflect, like what are the things you're good at? What do you enjoy? What gives you energy? What doesn't feel like work? Which I don't know, sounds like a very privileged take on work. But yeah, that's how I think about it. But I think with with venture, like I love the intellectual exercise of figuring out a business. And I think that's what I really like. I like am a nerd about business and business models. And then what I learned in the startup world with NerdWallet is that I also really like figuring out people and where they sit in an organization and how to make them do great work. How do you create the conditions to do great work on one hand? And then how do you think about how that intersects with the actual business you're building, right? So I think those are like things that I'm like very interested in and enjoy spending time on. One thing that is there as well is like you were not only learning about optimizing for learning, but you're also learning about, like I said, the business, learning about there. And another thing that struck me a lot was you kept mentioning the people you were working with, right? So you're like learning about your boss, learning about the founder, learning about your boss's lifestyle, right? You know, which by the way, I totally empathize with because I joined Bain as my first job. And then I looked at the partner's life and then straight away, I was like, whoa, you don't see 
your wife as well and your kids for like four days a week at least, right? So I was very much like, whoa, I just learned I don't want your job. Which of course you never tell anyone. <laughs> because Yeah, we're good friends now, me and my old boss. But yeah, in the moment, it probably was not the most politically correct thing to say to him. Yeah. So how do you think about that? How do you, I think there's a big one, right? Which is how do you learn who's someone you want to work with? So you mentioned obviously the business side, right? Big market, early signs. Uh, you, you mentioned high integrity on the personal side. And you talk about it's only one year as a time gate. But talk about high integrity. Talk about who you choose to work with. I mean, I think of life as a, it's a repeated game, right? And so I often tell people like life is long, but the world is small. So act accordingly. And I think that governs how you want to operate with people and what kind of people you want to operate with. And so when you say high integrity, do they make the right decision, even if it comes at personal cost to them? Do they have a sense of right or wrong? <laughs> and that's important to me because I think life's too short to work with people that make you feel icky. And if you don't feel great about having them come over for dinner and meet your family, then that's not a good sign, I think. And all the money in the world doesn't change that. And, and honestly, like most people, I think if you went to college, you have a pretty decent life. Like adding 10x more money doesn't make it that 10x better. And so I think those are sort of personal values and trade-offs that you have to think about. So I look for people who make me better. So ideally, they're good at things that I'm not good at. They are sort of self-aware human beings. Like, And this is a hard one because everyone thinks they're self-aware, obviously. But they are emotionally mature enough to have hard conversations. They are not passive-aggressive. Because like, it's like life's too short. Like, If you think about most like human drama, it's because... Person A wants to tell person B something, but like can't find the way to say it. Person B senses something is wrong with person A, but person A says nothing is wrong. So person B makes up stories in their head about what could possibly be wrong. Meanwhile, no work is getting done. You know, so so it's like I think <laughs> you just kind of want to work with people who are like, hey, you know, it's like classic formulation. When you do X, it makes me feel Y. Pause. I would prefer if you did Z, and then you kind of just get over it and you like move on, right? And so. I think this sort of emotional maturity, self-awareness piece has become increasingly important as I get older because I just don't have the energy to deal with that anymore. And I also think that in this remote world, strong communication, strong communicators are really important to like high quality work situations. It's not just tooling, although tooling matters. It's not just process. Like people actually need to understand and value high quality communication. And that can be written, it can be spoken, but I think when I look for people to work with, that's kind of what I index on. And, you know, I like people who are like a little bit weird, who don't take themselves too seriously. Because I think for this business, you have to be like a little bit weird. Yeah, that's really interesting, right? Because what's interesting is that you've become more sophisticated. In other words, you've learned more about learning <laughs> over time, right? That's something that I'm starting to pick up from this conversation, right? I mean, obviously, you learn about bosses, you learn about companies, you've learned about different industries, you've learned about yourself. But it also sounds like you think quite a bit about learning. You think about a lot about learning, which shows me that you've been learning about learning, which is quite meta, I guess. But I'm just kind of curious. Do you have any interesting thoughts about that? Yeah, I mean, I think that's why I think it's like so funny when people are like, oh, what should somebody major in? It's like, well, I don't know. Like, influencer is a job now. That was not a job when I was in college. 
right? And how could you ever have majored in that? You wouldn't have, right? But if you are good at learning, you would have figured it out. And so I think knowing how to learn is incredibly important because there's just so much in the world you're not going to know. You can't. There's no way you can prepare for it, right? And so then you just have to like have a prepared mind to go like figure it out. And in startup land, a lot of people want to index on credentials or experience, but the fact of the matter is like if it's a startup, you know, either you're like inventing a new market or you have a different approach, like it's not knowable. So you're going to have to figure it out. The team that learns and implements the fastest will win, not the team that started out with the most experience or the most capital necessarily. And so I think when we look at entrepreneurs as well, we think about what is this person's pace of learning? What is the ramp, right? They might start low, but they, and you can see it, right? I have this company, they send us an update every week and it is incredible because literally you can see the progress every week. They're like, here's how many people to talk to. Here's what we learned. Here's what we implemented into the product. We shipped this feature. And then the next week they're like, from the feature we shipped last week, here's what happened. Bop, 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 bop. Rinse, repeat, rinse, repeat, rinse, repeat. And you can see the business taking shape that way. Conversely, there are people who never send you updates. You have to like call them or text them and be like, hey, let's catch up. Tell me what's happening. Da, 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 da. And they'll be like, well, we're thinking about these things. And I was like, okay, so what would make you do something? Like what would change your mind, right? And I think in the early stage, at least for software, I'm a big believer that good plans, what is it? Good plans violently executed now better than perfect plans executed later. And that is all about pace of learning. And so how do you teach yourself that? And I think it's really hard because the more experience you accumulate, the more the tendency is to be like, well, in my day, this is how we did things. And sometimes that works. And then sometimes it makes you miss the big things. So how do you stay kind of constantly open to that, tune that balance between what matters and like what is new information that really is a paradigm shift? And how do you prepare yourself for that? Wow, you just said you drop a ton of knowledge in that, right? So startups learning faster wins faster than those of experience. So that's a really good phrase. And I totally agree with you about that. But I think you actually said a very interesting phrase after that, which was as well, which was, you asked people and said, what would change your mind? And that's a really interesting question, right? Like, have you seen that question be effective? Does it actually like wake people up and just be like, oh, I'm, I'm going to start thinking more rigorously about this? How have you used that phrase? Yeah. I think it sometimes accelerates conversations where you can kind of feel like everyone's kind of going around in a circle and you're like, okay, you kind of just have to make a call. Right? It's like talking more doesn't actually give you more information, right? So either it is, okay, I'm not having more information, so but I think this is a reasonable hypothesis, I will try. Or I don't have more information, therefore I don't feel comfortable acting. But at least when you ask the question, what would I have to see to act? Then you know, okay, well, we don't need to talk about this anymore. <laughs> Move on. But when I do see this thing, whatever it is, then I'll know, okay, I'm going to go do this, right? I think about meetings or anything, right? It's like, it's trying to score a goal in soccer. I'm not a big soccer fan. The thing that irritates me most about soccer is that you can play to a draw, right? But even more irritating is when you watch people just pass the ball back and forth, back and forth, and it like doesn't move down the field. And so like, I think every conversation, you want it to go somewhere. You want it to move down the field, right? And it's the same thing with these decision-making things. It's like, okay, either we're going to score the goal or we're going to stop playing, but we're not going to like run around in the middle field, do nothing. That seems like not a great use of time. I think one thing is interesting, you know, as I keep hearing this is what would change your mind. So it's a function of, of learning is also a function of communication, right? So those are like two sides of the same coin, right? Which is like, you can be learning internally, but if you're not communicating well, you can't you can't work as a team, right? And therefore you can't learn as a group. So I think there's something that I'm starting to hear from you, right? There's like two sides of it. It's like, there's a learning loop 
and as a communications loop, right? Because when you were talking about your startups, well, you're talking about the teams debating, you're talking about you working with that person or founder or your teammate in communicating. And you're also talking about the investor updates that startups are giving to you, right? How important is communication as part of that learning loop? It's huge, right? I mean, I think this is the, I've been thinking about this a lot because I think in the remote world, if you don't deliberately make an effort to communicate, then there isn't that serendipity of running into someone in the pantry and being like, oh, hey, how's that thing going, right? Or, oh, you look excited or you look down, like what's happening? It literally has to, you have to like initiate effort to communicate this thing out, right? If you think about it, we all operate with each other based on our prior experience with the person. Like you emit a series of dots, like a data points over time. And I, in my mind, I'm like, oh, Jeremy, he has this pattern of dots. When I first meet you, I have no dots, right? I only have this first impression. And then imagine that we didn't hang out for like five more years. I had no intermediate dots except like random things that I saw on social media. And then Jeremy's like, Shan, I'm raising $10 million, you know, will you back me? And I was like, oh, well, then it's almost like having no dots, right? I would just evaluate it like separately. And I think that's like that with companies, but it's also with that with people, right? If you don't emit dots at a regular cadence that kind of lets people update their picture in the mind of what you are or how your business is, then they kind of have to cast back their minds to like that last dot they had about you and be like, oh, I seem to remember the business was struggling with like XYZ thing. But then the founder's just like, oh, but we fixed all those things. And that's why we're raising money or that's why we need you to bridge us or like whatever the case may be. And it's just like way more work to get there than, oh, I've been receiving like steady reports on progress. I understand how they're thinking about this problem. It makes total sense to me like, okay, maybe the data is not that great, but because I've seen all this progress, I trust the process. And that's ultimately what you're trying to build with people, right? Whether it's like human beings one-to-one, we're trying to build trust with each other, companies to investors, companies to their own employees, you're trying to build trust with each other, right? And I mean, that's something we haven't touched on, which is as companies grow, I think one thing they systematically underinvest in is employee communication. So everyone is like so used to the like, okay, I got 10 people, I like stuff them all in a room and we're like jamming. And then suddenly, oh, the business is doing great. Now we're like at 25 people or 30 people. You can't stuff 30 people in a room. And in a remote world, you definitely can't do that. Okay, well, how does everybody know what's going on? And what is the cadence by which they are like constantly reminded, this is where the business is going. Here's how we're going to get there. This is your role in getting us there. And it feels like you're on this totally, just like repeating yourself over and you're like, how can no one know my strategy by now? I say it all the time. But basically, the bigger your company gets, the more you have to repeat it. And so, yes, I think that communication, high quality communication is such a superpower. And I think it is systematically underinvested in. Well, yeah, that's so true. Uh, it's so much underinvestment. And I think I like what you said about trusting the process. What's interesting as well when you talk about all this is that you're not only absorbing all this information, you also do practice what you preach, right? Because you do regular writing and you work very hard to communicate with your teammates and your founders from what I've noticed and observed over time. So how have you improved your communication practice over time? I, don't, I guess you didn't grow up in university writing updates and emails. It's a great question. I mean, I think there's some professional training around it, right? When you work on a project team, on a bank or whatever, you're on a deal team, like there's always people you have to keep appraised of what's happening because you're on a deal timeline. So it's always like, hey, this is what's happening. This thing is in motion. We need this, blah, blah, blah. And it's the same thing with venture, which is like you have this month, you have this weekly meeting cadence, right? So you're always like, 
what deals am I looking at? What am I evaluating? Who do I need introductions? Like it's, it's very regular. I think Bridgewater took it to like the next level. Bridgewater has this thing called the daily update. So everyone has to write a daily update and they have a whole like internally developed software system to do that. At NerdWallet, I implemented it when probably we were like 10 or 15 people because we were already starting to feel that strain where you're like people are running around, you have no idea what they're doing. And it was just a uh, end of the week, everyone writes an email that just says, here's what I did this week and here's what I learned and here's where I need help. And we actually did that. It evolved a little bit. So of course, at one point the company got too big. You can't just send an email to like 50 people and I was going to read 50 update emails. So it's just like by team, you send it to your manager and then the manager rolls it up to the manager's manager. And then if you're the CEO or the management team, you can kind of see updates from every business unit on Sunday night. So when you head into the office Monday morning, you kind of like know, okay, what fires do I need to go fight? And actually it was Bridgewater plus Diane Green from VMware talked about how she ran this at VMware. And so I was like, we need to do this. And we actually, I, I have to check in with Tim, but when I left, we basically just did a version that was CEO's reflections that went out to the whole company. And we alternated between like the CEO, the COO, the CFO, they would alternate reflections that went out to the company. And I think that was incredibly useful separate from our all hands meetings or whatever it was, because you basically could just see, oh, this is what's on Tim's mind. And it kind of just gave that intimacy and that communication channel. So it's a lot of practice. It's a lot of like fine tuning. But some of it is just a forcing function. Last year, I said I was going to write a note every week to the portfolio. And I did. And that was just a forcing function. I still don't do it enough. My business partner, Elizabeth, is really good at it. And so in the spirit of learning from people who are better at things than you, I'm constantly learning from her on how to get even higher quality, higher frequency. Awesome. Well, coming out of time here, but just kind of my last question here is, where were you 10 years ago? And if you could travel back in time, what advice would you give her? Uh, buy Bitcoin. <laughs> <laughs> wait, 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 so we're going to start first. Where were you 10 years ago? What were you doing? What were you hanging out with? This is, uh, we're 2021. So 10 years ago, I would be in my final semester at HBS. I had this job. I was starting at Bridgewater in the summer. But what I've told her, oh gosh, exercise more? Yeah, I mean, I think it probably would have been like, do more self-care. I feel like in the first like three years of the startup and even at Bridgewater, like Bridgewater, I worked a lot. I didn't feel like particularly healthy. And I think in the spirit of things that compound over time, sleep, exercise, good diet, all those things I think are like useful things to invest in over time. <laughs> so true. I, I always tell people like, how did you balance two startups? And I was like, yeah, I tell them I gained 20 kilograms over those two startups. Uh, so self-care is important early up front. Underappreciated advice. Well, Shane, thank you so much for sharing your journey. I just love what you said about kind of like learning what you like and what you don't like. Startups learning faster wins those with experience. What would change your mind as a instigation topic? <laughs> Communication and learning being both sides of the same coin. And also my favorite phrase actually still as well as you can do anything for 10 weeks. <laughs> you know? I think that's true. <laughs>
I think it's true. I mean, the human body is incredibly adaptable. And I think that it's good to push yourself early because then you know what you're capable of. It gives you more confidence for subsequent things. For sure. Awesome. Thanks so much, Yen. I really have enjoyed having you on the show. Thanks, Jeremy.